Now, dear friends, our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 20 to 22. And as has been our pattern in recent weeks and months, as we consider those verses, we'll be looking back to a few different points in Genesis, two of which Alexis read for us earlier in the service. Now, fair warning that though this has been the case, especially this morning, we'll be considering quite a lot of biblical ground. So as always, it's best if you have your Bible available and you're ready to follow along. Here in verses 20 to 22 of Hebrews chapter 11, we conclude this morning the pastor's consideration of the faith of the patriarchs and matriarchs of Israel. As we've seen over the last several weeks, the foundational example of faith from the patriarchal era is that of Abraham, the man of faith, as Paul calls him in Galatians 3, verse 9. The pastor writing Hebrews spends comparatively little time on the faith of Abraham's immediate descendants. In fact, when it comes to Abraham's son, Isaac, his grandson, Jacob, and his great-grandson, Joseph, the pastor says nothing at all about their lives of faith, though Genesis certainly includes more about them, especially Joseph and Jacob. But why might that be? Well, I like how one commentator puts it when he says, our author evidently felt that what he had already said about Abraham as an example of faith's constancy was sufficiently instructive regarding the principles and the practice of the life of faith during this period. Now, as one generation succeeded another and the promises still awaited fulfillment, our author's purpose was effectively served by pointing to the triumph of faith in the face of death, the last and darkest trial of all. You will have noticed, perhaps, that the examples the pastor highlights in verses 20 to 22 in Hebrews 11 all occur in the final days of these three patriarchs, not because the rest of their lives didn't matter, but rather because the pastor here is making a point. And the way I would summarize that point is that from the dying examples of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, what we learn or what we are reminded of is that faith trusts in the plan of God. Faith trusts in the plan of God to bring about the promises of God. What links the three examples we have in verses 20 to 22 is that the patriarch's faith is seen in how, as they come to the end of their lives, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph trusted that God would fulfill his promises according to a plan of God's design. Which is crucial. Because as we've seen, the promises of God given to Abraham weren't just for Abraham. Right? The pastor noted that fact in verse 9 of Hebrews 11. When he said concerning Abraham that by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. 
When God came to Abraham, he entered into covenant, not just with Abraham, but also with all the generations that were to come through Abraham. So as the record of Hebrews 11 continues now, we're not considering random individuals. We're looking at the generations that came after Abraham within the context of the covenant and the promises it entailed. In Genesis 17, verse 4 and following, God says, Behold, my covenant is with you, Abraham, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so what's required of the descendants of Abraham to continue in this covenant is the same thing that was required of Abraham himself. Faith. Faith is what's required. Like Abraham, his descendants were to live as if God's promises regarding the future were sure. And as we see then clearly in the verses before us, that means trusting that God has a plan to bring those promises about. The pastor's focus in verses 20 to 22 is on the dying examples of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, because despite all their difficulties and all their weaknesses, some of which we'll comment on this morning, they trusted God and his plan. They knew what the promises were, and by faith they trusted God's plan to bring those promises about. Now, as we'll see, that plan didn't always look the way they thought it should, nor did it always work in the way they assumed it would. The plan of God was not always what made the most sense in the context of their world at the time, either. But this is the bottom line for the pastor because it's the bottom line of faith. Faith trusts in the plan of God. Now, the structure of the rest of this sermon won't be complicated, but it will be quite lopsided, as my sermons tend to be. We have three verses with three examples here, all of which I suggest are meant to make the point that faith trusts in the plan of God. Verse 20, of course, is about Isaac. Verse 21, about Jacob. Verse 22, about Joseph. And we'll consider them in turn, looking also to the Genesis passages that lie behind each one, but we will not be spending the same amount of time on all three. I was tempted, I must tell you, to break these verses up into multiple sermons, but you'll be glad to know that I resisted that temptation, or at least you're glad now. It might be a long sermon. But in the end, I thought the overall point would be clearer to keep them together, that faith trusts in the plan of God. But that faith doesn't show up the same way in all of our lives. And I think that of these three examples before us, it's the first one regarding Isaac that is perhaps the hardest to see. So let's begin in verse 20, and we're going to spend some time thinking for a while about Isaac. Hebrews 11, verse 20 says, By faith Isaac invoked 
future blessings on Jacob and Esau. It might help a little if we were to translate that more literally from the Greek this way. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. I like that a little better because it puts the focus more precisely on the blessing Abraham's son Isaac gave to his two sons concerning things to come. Because the things to come for Jacob and Esau were very different if you know the story. And there's a big clue here regarding this, and that's in the order of the names of Isaac's sons as the pastor states it in verse 20. Notice how the pastor says, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. That's significant because that was, in fact, the order in which Isaac blessed his sons. But if you've ever read the Genesis account that's behind this verse, you know that wasn't the way Isaac wanted things to be. At least, not at first. Now, I didn't ask Alexis to read from Genesis chapter 27 this morning because I thought it would just be too much to have all of these texts read. And I figured that of all of them, this may be the one that would perhaps be most familiar to most of you. But I sort of wish I had had her read it because I want to think about it with you some now. So even though we didn't hear it read earlier, would you turn over there in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 27 as we look at Isaac? It's verses 1 to 40 of Genesis 27 that are in view. But I probably should set things up a little more. So let me do that. You know who Isaac is. He's the child of promise born to Abraham and Sarah, the one Abraham almost sacrificed in Genesis chapter 22, as we talked about last week. And just as the Lord had said, it was Isaac rather than Isaac's older half-brother Ishmael who received the covenant blessing. Sometime after Abraham had died, the Lord came to Isaac to confirm the covenant with him. This is in Genesis 26, where we read there in Genesis 26, verse 3, that the Lord said to Isaac, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. You can hear in that the explicit continuation of the promises spoken to Abraham now given by the Lord to Isaac, Abraham's son, concerning his offspring. Only to appreciate what happens in Genesis chapter 27 concerning Isaac's sons and the continuation of the covenant promise through his blessing, we need to look back at what happened in Genesis 25 first. Isaac had married Rebekah, who was from Abraham's home country in Mesopotamia. And then in Genesis chapter 25, we find the account of the birth of twin boys to Isaac and Rebekah in response to their prayer for Rebekah's barrenness. 
Genesis chapter 25, verse 21 says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But then there was a struggle. Verse 22 says, The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And then listen to what the Lord said to Rebekah in verse 23 of Genesis 25. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the other shall serve the younger. The Lord explicitly tells Rebekah what's going on with her two boys. And then the birth happens. Verse 25, the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Esau's the older, Jacob's the younger, and so from the very start, we know that it would be the younger son, Jacob, who would receive the blessing. Esau would serve his younger brother. And what's more, Isaac and Rebekah knew it because the Lord had said it. But then we read just a few verses on in Genesis chapter 25, and we sense that something's amiss. It says in verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And then verse 28 says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, the New International Version is even less flattering concerning Isaac in how it translates that verse. The NIV says in verse 28, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Years then pass. Only it seems that as those years passed, though Isaac was a man of faith and though Isaac had received the covenant promises in Genesis chapter 26, something had happened. Isaac is quite old now. And it seems that Isaac's early preference for Esau that had been rooted in his love for the wild game that his son brought him had only grown over those years. In fact, it had grown to the point that Isaac, Abraham's son, had come to oppose the will of God regarding Jacob and Esau. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 27, we also learn in the end of Genesis 25 that Esau had sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. We learn in the end of Genesis 26 that Esau had married two Canaanite women, making life bitter, the text says, for Isaac and Rebekah. And still, you come to Genesis 27, and even though Isaac knows what the Lord had said, and even though he knows the things Esau had done, still what does Isaac want to do? All of that notwithstanding, at the end of his life, Isaac is determined to give Esau the firstborn's blessing. Look at Genesis chapter 27, verse 1. 
When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son. And he said, verse 2, Behold, I am old, I do not know the day of my death. And note that, because the pastor in Hebrews doesn't make the fact that Isaac is about to die explicit, as he does with Jacob and Joseph, but this is where Isaac was at. Now then, take your weapons your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. And I mean, that's where we see the end to which the simple statement that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game back in Genesis chapter 25 we see where that had got to in Isaac's life. He's completely controlled by it at this point. In his desire for self-gratification, he was determined to have his way despite God's word. Make sense? The language here in verses 1 to 4 of Genesis 27 reflects this. Isaac's desire that his soul would bless Esau indicates how intensely passionate he was about it. This is more than saying just, I desire with all my heart even. It was with his whole being. As one Jewish commentator explains, the wording here means, Isaac summons from the very depths of his own soul all the vitality and energy at his command in order to invoke God's blessing upon his son. And that's where we are here. Isaac was willing to ignore God's word and the desires of his wife Rebekah and his elect younger son, who now had the birthright, in order to bless his immoral, pleasure-seeking older son. We can't cover all the detail of chapter 27 of Genesis. Many of you know it. Rebekah overhears what Isaac says to Esau. She makes plans with Jacob then to trick her husband into giving Jacob the blessing instead. She tells Jacob what to do and Jacob does it. He goes into his nearly blind father first, having covered himself with animal skins to present the feel and the smell of Esau, having brought a meal just like the one his father wanted. Rebekah cooked it for him and Isaac ends up giving Jacob the blessing that he had intended for Esau. And you say, if you're following with me, this is where you say, so where's the faith in that? Where's the faith in that whole depraved episode? And my answer is, there wasn't any. There wasn't any. Not in that moment. I don't think anyone acts in faith at that point in Genesis chapter 27. Isaac's controlled by his stomach. Rebekah and Jacob are co-conspirators in deception. And Esau's eager to get what he already knows he can't have. Because as Hebrews 12 verse 16 will put it, he sold his birthright for a single meal. But since it's Isaac we're focused on here, notice how not subtle he is. Look at verse 29 of Genesis 27. In the blessing Isaac unwittingly gives to Jacob, but had intended for Esau. Isaac says, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. 
What was it that the Lord had said to Rebekah so many years earlier before the birth of Jacob and Esau? Remember, the older shall serve the younger. What Isaac's doing is proclaiming the exact opposite of that. By this point of his life, Isaac had come to utterly reject God's word to Rebekah. As one commentator puts it, Isaac's passionate hubris erupted to bless his Esau first. With the covenant mantle of fertile land and God's good bounty and empire and protection, Isaac had thwarted God, so he thought. So he did think. Right up until it became shatteringly clear that it was not so. Jacob leaves. And no sooner had Jacob walked out the door than Esau comes into his father. And here we are in Genesis chapter 27, verse 31. And Esau said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. And then see, here's the moment. Here's the moment, I, as I read it, here's the moment that it all comes home to Isaac. Verse 33. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then? that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. Now, why would Isaac say that? Isaac knew in that moment that it was Jacob who had deceived him. He wasn't really asking who it was. He knew who it was. Why would he say, yes, and he shall be blessed? If it had all been a deception, surely a blessing based on a deception wouldn't have to remain in force. Surely Isaac could take it back. But he doesn't. And I think, and maybe you don't read it this way, but I think the reason Isaac doesn't is because it's in that moment that Isaac finally comes to the point that he should have come to long, long ago that he trusts in God's plan. I think the violent trembling of Isaac's body signals the fall of his willful opposition to the word of God. Listen to how the American preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse once put it. Before a great work of grace, there must be a great earthquake. Isaac had put his personal love of Esau ahead of the will of God. Down came his idol, and the edifice of willful love collapsed before the shaking power that took hold of him. The arrogant pride, which had slyly planned to thwart God, toppled to the ground, broken beyond repair. When Isaac trembled exceedingly, all his desires were shattered. 
Yes, and he shall be blessed, Isaac declares, because finally Isaac had accepted Jacob as blessed of God, and now nothing, not even the tears of his beloved Esau, would change his mind. Brothers and sisters, it wasn't Isaac's willful, sinful blessing of Jacob, who he thought was Esau, that was an act of faith. God's plan cannot be manipulated. And it cannot be thwarted. And Isaac's by faith blessing takes place when he affirms of Jacob, yes, and he shall be blessed. That had been the Lord's plan all along. And Jacob would soon acknowledge it. Isaac would soon acknowledge it explicitly. Look briefly, if you would, over to Genesis chapter 28. Look at how it starts in verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. And what was the content of that blessing? It was the very promises spoken to Abraham, spoken also to Isaac, now spoken over Jacob. Verse 3, God Almighty bless you, make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. In his final days, by God's grace, Isaac came to trust in the plan of God. He now recognized Jacob as the true heir of the Abrahamic covenant. And I mean, it was by God's grace that Isaac came to that point, right? The earthquake that took place in his life called him back to a life of faith. Why? Well, we saw this last week over and over in the life of Abraham, didn't we? We see it now with Abraham's son. It's because God is determined to keep his word even in the face of our unbelief. God will see to it that his people, including Isaac, are sanctified. For as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2 verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God will fulfill his word we must yield, as Isaac eventually did, to God's plan. Now, the time is already short. As we turn now much more briefly to the second example of faith in God's plan, trust in God's plan, that we find in Hebrews 11, verse 21. The pastor says in verse 21 of Hebrews 11, by faith, Jacob. Jacob, now. When dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Once again, I think the pastor's point is clear that Jacob trusted the plan of God. Which is not to say that Jacob's life was absent any struggles of faith. Here's the way one author briefly summarizes Jacob. What Jacob did to gain his father's blessing became a life pattern. He tricked his father to steal Esau's blessing, and he went on to trick his father-in-law Laban out of great flocks in order to make himself rich. 
But Jacob's grasping tendencies did not truly bless him, for with each self-reliant achievement he had to flee the anger of those whom he had wronged. Finally, this pattern brought Jacob to the end of his mental resources. Beside the Jabbok River, God wrestled Jacob into submission, and the grasper was made a man of faith. And it's Genesis chapter 32 that that author refers to there. God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, and thereafter he was a model believer. So that it's heartening, therefore, to read about Jacob now at the end of his life. He was not the man he had once been, manipulating circumstances for his own benefit. If you've ever read Genesis, you know that years after Jacob was wrestled to faith by the Lord in chapter 32, Jacob and his family had come to Egypt during a time of great famine. Jacob's son, Joseph, had been serving there in Egypt as prime minister to Pharaoh, which was how it was that Pharaoh had been persuaded to grant Jacob and Jacob's family the land of Goshen, a rich pasture land on the edges of Egypt where they could keep their flocks along with the royal cattle. Genesis 47 verses 11 and 12 summarize all of this, saying, Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, Jacob, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Here amidst worldwide famine, Jacob and his sons were granted a permanent possession in Egypt. God had prospered his people. And so it was that the reading from Genesis 47 and 48 began that Alexis read a while ago. In chapter 47, verse 27, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And yet, for all the prosperity that had come to his people there in Egypt, Jacob knew the Lord's promises. Though he would die in that country, he could not be buried there. Listen again to the end of Genesis 47, for it's from this text that the pastor draws part of what he says about Jacob in Hebrews 11. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, Swear to me. And Joseph swore to him. Then Israel, that is the name of Jacob, Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Only if you happen to be reading in the NIV, verse 31 there of Genesis 47 is different. In the NIV, verse 31 says, Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. 
Why that difference? Well, in the ESV, there's a footnote at the end of verse 31. That footnote explains that the Hebrew word translated bed is rendered differently in the Greek version of the Old Testament. There, instead of translating the Hebrew to mean Jacob's bed, a slight change in the vowel pointing of the same Hebrew consonants results in the translation for a staff. According to Genesis 47, verse 31, in the Greek Septuagint, Jacob bowed in worship over the top of his staff just before he blessed Joseph's sons. We've said before that the Septuagint is the version of the Old Testament that the pastor writing Hebrews uses. And what a fitting scene it is for him to draw on now. Some scholars speculate that the significance of Jacob's staff here is that his staff was the sign of his pilgrimage. As one commentator says, Jacob's final act of worship, leaning upon the top of his staff, was characteristic for one who lived his life as a stranger and a sojourner. The demand to bury his remains in Canaan was a declaration of his faith in the promises of God. Abraham had purchased the tomb for Sarah, he had himself been buried next to her. There also Isaac's bones had been laid aside theirs. Yes, the Lord had prospered Israel in Egypt. But as he neared death, Jacob's soul rose above his material existence in that land. And like his fathers at the end of his life, by faith, Jacob looked to the ultimate homeland, the ultimate prosperity, the heavenly better country. It was in that time of worship and strong faith that Jacob was keenly aware of God's plan. Genesis 48 recounts how Joseph brought Manasseh and Ephraim, his two half-Egyptian sons, to his ailing father. Jacob summoned his strength as he recalled the promise that undergirded what he was about to do. Alexis read in Genesis 48, verse 3, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Jacob then informed Joseph of his intentions. And now your two sons, Jacob says, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. In what is essentially the equivalent of an adoption ceremony in this passage, Ephraim and Manasseh would become not Jacob's grandsons, but sons, in fact, sons numbers one and two, in fact, displacing Reuben and Simeon. That's why Jacob claimed them twice as mine. Now Rachel's firstborn son, Joseph, could extend her line by Joseph's giving his sons to Jacob as direct heirs. And so the moment came. And Joseph brought the boys near Jacob and verse 13 describes it. Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right, and brought them near him and 
Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. It was the patriarchal blessing. Jacob's sons had been mightily blessed. Joseph's sons. And yet, in Joseph's eyes, something wasn't right about it. Verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. There could be no logical reason for Jacob to elevate Ephraim over Manasseh. Jacob had gone against every tradition from the Nile to the Euphrates. In the ancient world, the oldest son always received the chief blessing. But God operates differently. It was Jacob who knew God's plan and trusted it. His crossed hands of blessing were an act of profound faith. As one commentator notes, it had taken Jacob a lifetime of divine discipline to learn that he must only speak and do the word of God. Now he dared to trust God and believe his plans were best. He dared to do God's will despite the wishes of his illustrious godly son, Joseph. As Hebrews says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. In response to Joseph's protest, Jacob assured him his vision in that moment was perfectly clear. Genesis 49, verse 19. But his father Jacob refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. Thus, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Brothers and sisters, the plan of God will not always look as we expect it. It cannot be taken for granted. And it is not captive to position or privilege or expectation or tradition or whatever human standards we may have. In God's plan, the last are often first, and his grace often surprises. Like Jacob, we must keep our eyes focused on him always. He will start things in unexpected places, do things through unexpected people, all to show that he is the one orchestrating a plan that works according to his will, not ours. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Jacob, mature in faith, 
crossed his hands and blessed his adopted sons as he surrendered his life and the future of his people to God's plan. In the final hours of his life, Jacob rightly discerned the plan of the Lord and called on his son to do the same. At first, Joseph resisted, but the faith of his father would also be his. With this, the pastor concludes his comments on the faith of the patriarchs in verse 22 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Before dying, Jacob had said to his son Joseph in Genesis 48, verse 21, God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Joseph remembered those words and more. We could translate Hebrews 11, verse 22, this way, By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, remembered the exodus of the Israelites. Not because it had already happened. It wouldn't happen for hundreds of years. He remembered it because he knew what the Lord had told Abraham those many years before, in the night vision of Genesis 15. There in Genesis 15, verse 13, the Lord had said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And so by faith, though Joseph had spent nearly his entire life in Egypt, where he had enjoyed the privileges of unimaginable power and prosperity. Nevertheless, by faith, Joseph remembered. He remembered the promises and the prophecy that came with them, and he knew God's plan cannot fail. He gave command concerning his bones, the pastor says. I am about to die, he said to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 24. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. In due course, Moses would do just that, as Exodus 13, verse 19 records. And when the day came for Joshua to lead the Israelites into Canaan, Joshua 24, verse 32 says Joseph's bones were buried in Shechem, in Ephraim, the land of the blessed son. Brothers and sisters, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph were not equal to one another in either their spiritual or material or life circumstance terms. They were sinners like you and me. But according to the pastor, this is what they had in common, that by God's grace, at the time when it counted most, they trusted God's plan to bring about His promises. It is a plan that cannot be manipulated that must never be taken for granted and will never fail.
It is a plan that stretches back in history through Abraham and even before him, as it does stretch forward towards the eternal city. You and I live in a much different time than the patriarchs, but in the matter of faith as trusting in God's plan, well, nothing has changed. For as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The only question is, do we trust him? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.